This is such a great song. This is such a wonderful song. Now, it might not immediately strike you as a passage in the Bible that's appropriate for a Christmas sermon. And in some ways, that's true. You're not going to find something in this psalm on a Christmas card or on an ornament. It has nothing to do, I realize, with wise men or angels or shepherds. But I picked this psalm because I think it really addresses a difficulty that many Christians encounter around Christmas time, and people that aren't Christians too, for that matter. And, and that is that though they really want the holiday to be filled with joy and peace and kind of a deep sense of having been able to reflect on, on the glory and wonder of the birth of Christ and to celebrate that in their hearts, that instead tensions and anxiety and pressure and disappointment and bad feelings tend to crowd into their hearts and minds instead. I've noticed over the years that people tend to experience those negative feelings more acutely during the holidays, and I think that there's a lot of reason for this. Uh, The pressures of consumerism, uh, sometimes the holidays mean that we're going to have to spend time with people who are difficult to us, and, and, and we get together with them, and we're sort of forced to interact with them. Sometimes it's just the busyness of the season. People around this time, I think, tend to compare themselves more to other people and the positions of other people during this time of the year. And I also think that Christmas is a unique holiday because maybe since it lies at the end of the year, it often represents a milestone for us. Uh, It's a natural time for us to take stock of our lives and to compare ourselves to where we were at in previous years and where we're hoping to be as far as our our goals in in life go. And, And as might be expected, we compare our current Christmas experience to Christmases that we've experienced in the past. And because of this, um, oftentimes the past wins. The past feels better. The, the present disappoints. And I think sort of as a mixture of all of these other things and many other reasons, Christmas can be kind of tough and, and people struggle with it. And then what happens is they struggle with the fact that they're struggling with it. You know what I mean? I mean, they realize that this is the, like the biggest time of year that we're supposed to be focused on what's going right, not what's going wrong. And we're supposed to be grateful for all the things that we have, not sorry about all of the things in life that seem to be missing. In other words, Christmas has a way of bringing out very deep longings and disappointments in people. Now, it is very important to realize that the Bible never tells us that those feelings are wrong. But what it does tell us is that what we need to do is we need to bring all of those disappointments and all of those longings to the Lord and that he has something to say about them. And I think that this at least in many ways, is what this psalm is about. It's a kind of a personal testimony that's written by a man named Asaph who feels very disappointed with his life and who longs for more than he's uh, experiencing. And what we're going to find out is that he's compared himself to other people who are not trying to live a godly life like he is, and he's become consumed, consumed with envy towards them. 
And what he's wondering is if living his life for the Lord is really all that it's cracked up to be. But then there's a change. Something happens and his perspective shifts completely. And I chose this psalm this morning with the hope that for for some of us, that our perspective this Christmas might change as well. What I want to do is just walk through this storm, this psalm. We're going to take a look at this man's story. And right out of the gate, what we find is that he presents us with a very simple truth. God is good to the pure in heart. But the next thing he does is he begins to tell us his story of struggling with that simple truth. Look at verses 1 through 3. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So what Asaph is saying here is he's saying it's true. God is good. It's true. God, uh, it's true that a life lived for God is worth it. It's true that he takes care of those who keep their hearts pure for him. But sometimes it doesn't feel like it's true. And to me, there was a time when it really didn't. There was a time when I thought, if God is really so good, then why is my life so hard and other people's lives are so easy? And if God really does take care of the pure in heart, then why do I feel so much like he's neglecting me? And what Asaph goes on to tell here is essentially a story of seduction. And it's his account of how all of these disappointments and unmet longings that were bubbling up inside of his life nearly seduced him away from God. And he has the guts to ask out loud, is it really worth it? Is God really enough? Does living the Christian life really make sense? Because it sure doesn't feel like it. It's a brave thing to ask, isn't it? And notice he's not asking it in some personal journal that he scribbled, closed, put a lock on, and hid under his bed. This is a story that's in the Bible. This is a story that we are, are given so that we can understand his struggles and bring our own to it. And the remarkable candor and honesty of this psalm that we find here and, and throughout the scriptures should really permit us to be more transparent and honest about our own doubts and fears. If God gives this man permission to doubt and he puts it in this book, then maybe he gives us permission to struggle with those things too. And I think that that especially those Christians who have followed Christ for any significant time at some point will run into doubts. And And I just think from here, some of what we take from this is that that's normal. It's not wrong to doubt. What do we do with them? Now, people struggle with doubt for all kinds of different reasons. And Asaph's particular struggle had to do with envy. He notices that those people in his life who are around him who do not care about God seem to have it really good. And he says in verses 4 through 12, just to summarize here, he says that they don't seem to have any worries in life. At least their worries aren't like my worries. Their bodies are sleek and fat. They're in perfect health. They enjoy freedoms and advantages in life that he doesn't feel he's feeling, experiencing. 
They, they are, he, he says, always at ease, increasing in riches, floating through life in their fancy houses and driving their fast cars or fast horses. They're not suffering from the same pains and burdens as everybody else is. And this part really gets him. They act as if their own superiority has accomplished all of this. He says, they wear pride like it's a necklace, right? They're showing off their pride. They arrogantly work the system to the detriment of other people. They operate without the confines of character and conscience. They scoff and speak malice. They threaten oppression. They care nothing for God whatsoever. He says, they set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut through the earth. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the most high? But the thing that bothers him the most about all of this is that it works for them. Why does it work for them? Everyone is either so jealous or afraid or adoring that they just let them get away with it. And even worse than that, God seems to be letting them get away with it too. And his point is very simply that it's not fair. And he's not whining, by the way. He's really experiencing this. He's really trying to come face to face with these feelings that he's got towards these people. What is the point of living a life for God? He asks, where has it gotten me? And just look at where unbelief has gotten them. I think there are modern examples of this thinking in life uh, everywhere. Hundreds of them. I'm sure there's some in your own heart as well, but... This morning, just imagine two parents who are newly married and they've just had a baby uh, six months ago. And this is a good couple, solid couple. You would like them if you met them. And these are two people who love the Lord. They followed him for a long time. But this Christmas, they are finding themselves very distracted and almost hardened towards spiritual things. The husband, he is really struggling because finances are very, very tight. He's been working an obscene amount of hours uh, each week, and he's absolutely exhausted. But in spite of it, his pay is, is very low, and his environment at work is so competitive. The coworkers of his will do anything to move ahead. It, it doesn't matter how another person might be impacted by it. Well, this man, so far this year, has been unwilling to compromise his principles. But now he finds himself facing new financial stresses because of unpaid medical bills. And he's got this pressure on him to purchase expensive gifts for his wife's very well-off family. And doubt is beginning to form in his mind. And he's beginning to wonder if godliness is really worth it or if that's just an ideal. And he hates the fact that he feels this way. He feels guilty about the fact that he feels this way. And it's driving him away from God and he doesn't know what to do with it. And his wife is not doing much better either. First of all, she's just had this baby. So she's feeling a little depressed and overwhelmed by it all. And worse off, she knows that she's going to have to spend at least part of the holidays with her sister, who is a flawless Barbie doll with a successful career and a beautiful home 
and a really tight circle of friends and a Facebook account through which she flaunts all of it very, very visibly. And this woman, she doesn't feel like she's looking her best or that she's got the emotional capacity to present herself with the impression she would like to pretend truly did represent her. And she wonders to herself, why is my unbelieving sister so secure and so confident in herself when I, a nearly lifelong follower of Christ, feel like my insecurities this Christmas have no limit? All I want to do is crawl into bed and hide under the covers. And is this really what the victorious Christian life is supposed to be? What is wrong? Do the disappointments that you face in life ever make you wonder if maybe this whole Christian faith thing isn't what it's cracked out to be? Maybe it really isn't worth it. If maybe there's a better plan, Asaph did. Asaph really struggled with that. And there was a time in his life when he said this. Look at verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean. It wasn't worth it. I tried so hard to keep my heart clean all of these years, and it was all in vain. And washed my hands of innocent. I should have kept them dirty. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that this this crisis of faith for him was so deep. It was so powerful within him that, that there was a time that if he would have even spoken, spoken about it, that it would have been like a betrayal to those who looked up to him. His feelings were so bad that it would have hurt those whom all of his life he tried to help build up in the faith. That This man's soul was in turmoil. Do you see that here? All of our longings and disappointments in life can cause turmoil for us too, can't they? This internal sense that what it is that we're doing in life is not working. And so we need to make some dramatic change of directions, right? Sometimes you see this in men in their 50s. We call it nicely a midlife crisis. But often it's just this sense that, that what we have in life, namely relationship with the Lord, is not enough. We begin to wonder if we ought to explore other avenues and other paths. Well, to try to figure all of this out and deal with these emotions that were just swirling inside of his heart and his mind, Asaph says it was just wearying to him. He, He couldn't figure it out. He couldn't deal with it. He was exhausted by it. Sometimes there's problems in life that we can get away and take a a weekend and and consider them and sort of work them through in our minds. This was not the case for him. This was much deeper than that. But in the midst of, of all of this, Asaph decided to do something that turned out to be the the wisest thing he could have done. 
And, and it became for him a kind of a turning point in all of this. Look at verses 16 and 17. He writes, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, right? And by the word, that, that, that word until, that's like the hinge. This is the turning point of the story. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. The turning point for Asaph was when he came to the temple to gather together with other believers there. And and he says that what happened is at that point, God broke through and gave him a new perspective, which we're going to find has led him to a new confidence. And the turning point for Asaph was, was one thing. It was worship. Worship. That was the hinge until he went to the temple where he worshiped. You know, when, when we come here on a Sunday morning, when we gather together, that's really what we come to do as well. We come to worship. It's, it's called a worship service. And, and so often, though, it's, it's easy to think of a worship service as being a chance for us to come together and uh, sing some songs that we like that make us feel good, emotions towards life or God, to interact with people that we really enjoy and appreciate, to listen to a sermon that hopefully speaks to our needs and our concerns and our passions. We, we think of a worship service as being something that we gather to that's meant to serve us spiritually, right? It's a, it's a service that serves uh, us, and, and hopefully it does that, right? Everything I just listed is, is a good thing. But these things are not necessarily what worship is. You see, worship is always centered on God. It's never centered on us. Worship is is always centered on God. And it begins even today, even right here, instead of coming to a worship service like this, thinking this is my chance to be served, It's coming to serve God. It's reversed. We come this morning because we want to serve God. And and what we do to serve him is we present ourselves very humbly just as we are. We first just present ourselves before God. and, And we do that without any pretense or pretending. We don't come in pretending that we're better than we really were. We don't come in wearing masks. We don't come in trying to prove something. We come to God and present ourselves exactly how we are and humbly before him, and we reflect on just how great and just how big and just how good and strong and powerful and wise and and loving our God is. His unfailable justice, his steadfast love and mercy. And as we do that, we begin to recognize how incredibly small we are. We think to ourselves, I am one of seven billion people on this planet right now. 
I'm like a speck of sand at the beach. I am so small and so frail, and God, I've done so many things wrong this week. I don't deserve to be able to come into your presence, and and yet still you love me. Still you care for me. Still you, you sent your own son to die for me. Still you forgive me. And then worship is our response to centering our hearts and our minds on the glory of God, so much so that we begin to delight and wonder with gratitude and recognition for all that he is, all that he's done, how I don't deserve any of it, and yet it's mine anyway. David was worshiping when he said, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, he said, I will give you praise. I will bow down toward your holy temple and will praise your name for your unfailing love and your faithfulness. When you come to church on a Sunday morning, what God wants most is your worship. And when you come to church on a Sunday morning, what you need most is to worship. You were made to worship. You were made to stand before God and glory in him with wonder in your heart. And what a worship service is meant to do is it's meant to be a place where we can practice those things together and then take those things with us separately into all of our lives. Worship is meant to be a part of everything that we do in life. And it was as Asaph entered the sanctuary to worship God with other people. Later in the psalm, I think he says that that God pricked his heart. And through that little pinhole that God had pricked in Asaph's heart, God let the light spill in like daylight. His grace, his mercy, his power, his love, his commitment to him, it just spilled in through that little hole, and then it expanded. And Asaph's heart changed. And he said, I've got it backwards. I was thinking entirely the wrong way. There was this complete shift in his perspective. And Asaph says, wait a minute, it's not me who should envy the wicked. He realizes it's the wicked who should envy me. And in many ways, the rest of the psalm is about why that is. Look at verse 18 through 20. He says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So in spite of all the things that these people had that he envied, right? Their wealth, their position, their health, their power, their popularity, the security that they enjoyed, all of those things that Asaph wanted so much for himself, he he realizes that those who are without God are not on the top, they're on the bottom. And he realizes that because he recognized that death can come at any moment, And that death changes everything. You know, the Bible teaches some really hard things about those who die who do not put their faith in Christ. And God doesn't do 
tell us these things to be mean. He doesn't tell us these things to be a jerk. He tells us these things because he wants us to know them because they're true. And he wants us to know them so that we will choose a different direction. God's every desire for every person is that they might come to him to receive mercy, grace, and eternal life through his son, Jesus. God says that to those who have not trusted that, on the other side of life is only judgment and sorrow. It's a hard reality that their best experience will only be in the now. But the Bible lovingly reminds us that later is coming and we need to be prepared for that. So Asaph says, truly, they're in a slippery place. Christians, we ought never to envy those who do not know Christ. No matter how good their life seems like it must be, we should never even flirt with the desire to trade positions with them. Eternal perspective ought to move us from worrying about our situation compared to them to being much more concerned about their situation compared to God. We should never envy the wicked. We should weep for them. We should love them. People who are far from God are just the people that we ought to love. Well, for Asaph, in recognizing what other people fundamentally did not have, what happened was his perspective shifted into focusing on what he fundamentally did have. And that's what he begins to write about next in verses 23 through 26. And and what you find in, in these verses is that Asaph begins to worship and celebrate God for four things that are true about him. Four things. The first is in verse 23. Asaph says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Now, the right hand in the Bible, at least as it's in regard to a a person, is a symbol of that person's strength. And so this is as though Asaph is saying, all of my strength is upheld by you, Lord. You sustain me. You secure me. You have me by the hand and you keep me from faltering or from falling. And you notice that what he says is this is continual. It doesn't stop, right? God doesn't let go. Did you know that that, that God is continually with you even through your darkest seasons and periods of struggle and doubt? You may be a Christian who's sitting here in this room right now and, and you don't have any sense in your soul whatsoever that God is near or close. Maybe that's your biggest disappointment this Christmas so far, that you just you don't feel that. But God would sooner turn his back on his own son Jesus than he would turn his back on you. In fact, during the crucifixion, do you remember when Jesus was on the cross that God actually turned his face from his own son as he died, as he hung there on the cross? 
Why was it that God turned his face away from Jesus? So that he could shine his face on us, right? So that we could experience his grace and his mercy and love. And so in that moment, when God was faced with the choice of either denying us and saving his son on the cross, or saving his son on the cross and denying us, who did God deny and who did God save, right? He denied his son to save us. And if God would go through all of that heartache and trouble to save us and rescue us, why would he ever deny us now? It was proven then. Why would it change now? But instead, God has promised us that he will never leave us. and He will never forsake us. Christian, if you're struggling with doubt today, God will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. It's his promise. It doesn't matter if you feel it or not. Asaph says this too. He says, you guide me with your counsel. Not only is he holding on to him tightly, but but Asaph says, you're also leading me. Right? We are not on our own down here in life to sort things out all by ourselves. I know that the future is very murky for all of us. We have no idea, none of us, what's coming next. And frankly, I believe that scares every person to their core. But God knows and sees all things. And Asaph just stops and celebrates the fact that that like any good father would do for his children, God's desire is to lead us and to guide us through the fog of life. And then he continues. He says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. You know, every race has a finish. You ever heard of a race that didn't have a finish line? A race without a finish line would be like daytime with no sunlight. It would be horrible. Uh, Imagine if we all lined up for a race, all of us this morning, and the starter pistol fired, and and we just ran and we ran and we ran until we collapsed. And then we got up and we started running some more and some more and some more until we collapsed again. And then we just kept running and running and running. And and if it was just that, if it was only running and, and no finish line ever, Who could possibly endure it? But you know, Christians sometimes live as if there's no finish line in this life. As if it's all just going to keep going and going and going the way it is. And as if disappointment and unmet longings will always be the way of this world. But it is not so, Asaph says, because he realizes that death is glory. Someone once said that for Christians, death is God's way of making us alive. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your death will be God's way of making you alive? At the finish line, everything is going to change. And after about three and a half minutes of physically standing in heaven, nobody is still going to be thinking about how they got ripped off by the guys who jumped ahead of him at work. Nobody's going to be thinking about that obnoxious sister of theirs and all their posts on Facebook. 
Nobody is going to stand in heaven before the throne of God and say, you know what? This just doesn't quite do it for me. This isn't really what I hoped. I was right. Keeping a pure heart all of those years was not worth it. I did that and all I got was this? Do you know what Jude tells us right at the end of his book? He tells us that when we stand before God, our experience will be one thing, great joy. However bad your life is right now, do you know what you have to look forward to? Great joy. The Apostle Paul said in the book of Colossians that for Christians, our life is hidden is hidden in Christ with God. Our life is hidden in Christ with God. And what part of that means is that you still haven't seen your life yet. You haven't experienced life yet. Not your true, full, complete experience of what it means to be alive. That's still coming. But Asaph says that in the meantime, as you race to the finish line, God has got a firm grasp on your right hand to strengthen you. And not only that, but along the way, he will guide you all the way to the end and deliver you safely and securely in glory with him. And and finally, he comes to this staggering conclusion, verses 25 through 26. He writes this. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He he thinks of all the ways that he's focused on what's going wrong in his life instead of what's going right in his life. And all the ways he's focused not on what he has, but on what he wants. And he realizes that he's been trying to fill his hopes for all of those things in, in, in all the wrong places. And then you know what he does? He repents. Okay, this is really a, a psalm of, of repentance. And, and he cries out to God. He says, what was I thinking? Not only am I willing to give up all of that if I can just have you, but I would give up my very life itself. My heart could stop beating. I'd be glad if I can just have you. He says, I choose you over everything. I choose you over anything. You're all that I want. This earth has nothing for me except you. Heaven itself has nothing for me that's more precious than you. I choose you. You're what I want. You're what I long for. What a transformation. Isn't that a transformation? Do you find yourself longing for that transformation in your life too? Find yourself thirsting for that? But what's the one thing that we can take out of this passage from Asaph's example to follow so that maybe God might light a little, let a little light into our hearts too? Well, I would say the one thing is this. Worship. Worship is the hinge that changed his direction And worship is the doorway through which we come to recognize that what we have in Christ exceeds in every way whatever it is that we don't have in the world right now. Do you believe that? 
It's so hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, some of you have such pains in your life, such heartache, such fear, difficulty. You believe that if those things don't get resolved in this life, if you're still hurting at the time that God brings you across that finish line, that you will say, as you stand before the throne of God, it was still worth it. You are worth it in every way. And you will worship. This Christmas, what God wants most from us is our worship. And what God deserves most from us is our worship. And what you and I need this Christmas more than any other thing is to worship God. And I hope we can do that together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this rich, beautiful, in some ways heart-wrenching psalm. And we thank you that you allow us, in fact, you even invite us to bring our struggles and disappointments and pain points in life to you Honestly, as our soul faces crises, we are able to bring those things to you because you welcome us to do so. Asaph modeled that for us so well here. And we do pray for all who are experiencing those things today. We, we pray for those who are hurting. We pray for those whose hearts feel hard towards you. And like Asaph, they're, they're just exhausted by it and not sure what to do. We pray that you would bring us to that place of worship, that you would help us to come before you and present ourselves exactly as we are with no falseness or sense of having to prove something. We pray that we might spend time, even this Christmas, as we consider your son coming into the world, not just to suffer as we do, but to eliminate in the future, all suffering. We thank you that he he died for our sins, that we might be right with you. Help, Help us to enjoy that and to be so grateful for the fact that we serve a God who would do something like that for us. Help us to be worshipers this Christmas. Help us to focus our hearts on you and help us to say, as Asaph said at the end of that song, that psalm, that... For us, it is good to be near God, that we have made God our refuge, and that we will tell of your wonders. In Jesus' name, amen.